Colossians 1, verses 25 to 29. Colossians chapter 1, 25 to 29. Remember, Paul was just talking to them about how he's, he's filling up in his body the afflictions of Jesus and that uh, we, were, we were looking at how um, it wasn't that there was something missing in Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross that it didn't quite accomplish, but instead that Paul's uh, physical life was taking on the characteristics of Jesus as he suffers for the sake of Jesus, he begins to look more like Jesus. And it also means that those that are around him are able to see Jesus in Paul. And so the physical presence of Christ that's missing, because Jesus is in heaven now, is now present with us in some sense in seeing the, the broken body of Paul, broken for the sake of, of Christ's church and for the sake of the gospel. And now look at what he goes on to say in verse 25, Colossians chapter 1, verse 25. Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations but now is made manifest to his saints to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the powerful Spirit of God that works through your word. And I pray that the Spirit of Jesus would be present with us this morning, that you would teach us and show us what your word says, and that we would be obedient to it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So Paul has been talking about uh, just the, the, the last verses that we read were Paul speaking of his body and the afflictions that he had in his body. As he's, he says that um, he is uh, filling up in his flesh, um, he, uh, filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of Christ's body. So Paul is talking about two realities, and I thought that that was a, uh, a powerful point that Paul is driving home because the, the temptation as we think about our afflictions for Jesus is to um, is develop a profound, profoundly individualistic idea of our faith. Um, I've talked to people that have this idea of a faith that's, um, that's very personal, and our faith should be personal, and a faith that's individualistic in a way that becomes almost, it's all about me and Jesus, and can't everybody in the world see Jesus in me, but it isn't really that concerned about anything outside of just me. It doesn't turn me out from myself. But Paul, as he describes what's happening to him, he frames it in the context of the church. He places it inside of, of, that, uh, of that understanding so we don't just see it as, oh, look at Paul, our superhero. Instead, we see it as, look at Paul, an example, but also a teacher and leader of the church. Paul's been talking to us about his body, and now he's going to talk to us about Jesus' body. 
Do you see that? You can, even, you can even see those two words existing side by side when he says, um, he's suffering for your sake. In his flesh, in his body, he's filling up the, the afflictions for the sake of Jesus' body. So Paul is not seeing his suffering and affliction as an end to themselves. And he doesn't even see his rescue and redemption and salvation as an end to itself. We, we live in a culture, and sometimes we can absorb so much of this idea that salvation is all about me and Jesus, something that happened deep in my heart, and it's about the fact that I get to go to heaven when I die. But that's hard to reconcile fully with Paul's vision of a suffering faith, of a strong faith, and of a faith that is going to transform the world around him. So Paul isn't just concerned about the fact that someday, uh, way out in the, in, the, in the distant future, Paul is going to arrive and he's going to get to be with Jesus, although he does talk to us about that, his excitement that someday he's going to be with the Lord when he dies and that that's going to be wonderful. But Paul's also concerned about the transforming power of the grace of God in the here and now. And if the world is going to be transformed, it won't just be transformed by individuals willing to suffer. It's going to be transformed by churches willing to be a body. And that is Paul's purpose that's driving him to be willing to suffer. He says that he's doing this for the sake of Christ's body, the church. We started uh, at, in verse 25, and I realized I was starting halfway through a sentence because Paul says, of which uh, I became a minister. So when you read that, you need to immediately go, what, what is he a minister of? And read the verse before and realize that he's talking about the church. Paul has become a minister of the church because of the stewardship. I realize in our Bibles it says uh, dispensation, but the idea is that Paul has been given a special task, the ministry of the church. Paul is a preacher, a pastor, a Bible teacher. He's been ordained or, or given an authority to teach. It was given to him, but look how over and over again Paul turns from him to his purpose, which is the church. So he says he's filling up these afflictions for the sake of the body. He says he's been made a minister. Uh, The stewardship was given to me for you, in other words, for the church again, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Do you like a good mystery? Uh, a story that as you're reading uh, the, the pages, you come upon some terrible crime or, uh, or a robbery or a disappearance. And a, a good mystery writer will unspool this mystery in such a way that it keeps you turning the pages. Um, a film that keeps you glued to the screen because you want to know what's going to happen. So the, the, as the story progresses, you get these glimpses and these hints, um, but you're not sure exactly who's, the, the question is who did it, right? Or maybe it's the kind of mystery where you know who did it, but you don't know how they pulled it off. And so the mystery story untangles the threads and begins to explain to you 
how they did this crime or how they accomplished this. And Paul said that God himself has a mystery that uh, he is, that Paul is making fully known. It was hidden for ages and for generations, but's now been revealed to his saints. And I, I read from different people, different opinions about what, what exactly Paul's digging at when he talks about this mystery. But from the very beginning of the Old Testament, there are hints and uh, glimpses of something that's going to happen later without ever fully explaining what it exactly means. Do you remember, uh, we could look at Balaam's prophecy. Balaam is this backslidden, messed up prophet. Um, He's a hypocrite. He's in it for the money. Um, He's like like a tele-evangelist of the Old Testament. Um, the only reason why Balaam is here is because he, he, his eyes light up when he hears somebody say, I'll pay you uh, a lot of money to do this. I'll give you honor and reward. But when Balaam begins to preach, the Holy Spirit takes over and begins to speak through Balaam and gives some of the most powerful prophecies of the, the, uh, Old Testament. And Balaam says, a scepter shall rise out of Judah. And he's giving prophecy about some coming king that's going to arise out of the tribe of Judah. And he's saying this when the children of Israel don't even have a king at all yet. They're this nomadic tribe of people out in the desert. And so there's a mystery. What's going to happen? Moses kind of builds on that mystery when Moses says, I'm leaving you all, but someday there's going to come a man greater than me, a teacher. And when he comes, you listen to him. I've given you the right of circumcision, or he had reinstituted the right of circumcision that God had given to to Abraham. But he said, the one that's coming, God is going to circumcise your hearts. He's going to transform and change you in some way that's going to enable you to obey God's law. God speaks to the prophet Isaiah. In, in words that left the children of Israel puzzled for hundreds of years. When Isaiah says, uh, who has believed our report? And to whom will the arm of the Lord re- be revealed? Because he's grown up like a tender plant and like a root out of a dry ground. There's no form or comeliness in him. And, and there's no beauty in him that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected of men. These were words that were so puzzling that a brilliant businessman and political elite from Ethiopia is riding along in his chariot, reading the words of Isaiah, and has no idea what they mean. He's so puzzled by what they're saying that when Philip jumps up in the chariot with him, Philip says, do you understand what he's reading? He said, how would I understand what I'm reading unless somebody explains it to me? This is a man who's very intelligent and very educated, but he does not understand what's being said. And it's not because he's stupid. It's because no one has revealed the mystery to him. And he says, in fact, he's so puzzled about these verses that he says to Philip, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Have you read, has anybody read poetry? Maybe you had to read poetry in school or if you read a book. And as you're reading it, you're like, I have no clue what this person is even talking about. Uh, my sister uh, sometimes 
her and I like some of the same music artists. And uh, she's like, you need to listen to this song. And I pulled it up and I was like, I honestly, I didn't totally follow it. She's like, she starts explaining, unpacking it. I'm like, ah, okay, now I get it. So as the Ethiopian politician is reading the book of Isaiah, he doesn't even know whether Isaiah is talking about himself or someone else. (coughs) And Philip begins to explain to him about Jesus because Jesus is the mystery revealed. The Old Testament is all pointing forward to Jesus. Remember, Jesus did this himself for the disciples on the road to Emmaus. These two discouraged disciples that are talking between themselves and they're depressed. And Jesus says to them, uh, why, do you, why do you talk like this to each other and why are you so sad? And they said, are you a stranger? Do you not know what's happened? And they tell him there was this mighty leader, this powerful leader, and we were sure that he was anointed by God and been sent to God to us. But now the Romans killed him and the story is over. And Jesus shakes his head because they don't understand the mystery. And he says to them, oh, you fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have told you. Did not the Messiah, was not the Messiah to to suffer and to die? And then here's what scripture says. It says that Jesus, starting with Moses and the prophets, expounded to them all things concerning himself. So what Jesus is saying as he preaches his little sermon to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he's telling them that all of this is actually about him. This Old Testament is pointing towards Jesus. Paul said it was hidden in the ages past. They didn't know when it was going to happen, and they didn't know who it was going to be. In fact, there was this earnest expectation, this building hope for messianic deliverance among the Jewish community that was finally coming to a a head because they're waiting and looking. And Paul says, this is who you've been looking for. This is the mystery revealed. He's come fully known, hidden for ages, but now revealed and not revealed to everyone. It's revealed to his saints, the ones that God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. What is Gentiles? Because this is, this is really key to what Paul is so excited about, the gospel proclamation that he's making. When he says it's been revealed to his saints... The mystery known, uh, God chose to, to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory. The very word, the, when Paul says Gentiles, it means in Paul's, the world Paul grew up in, the world of Pharisees and strict religious legalism, it means among the spiritual rejects, the losers the people who are not the chosen ones, because we as the Jews are the chosen people of God. So the mystery revealed is not just that God himself comes in the fullness of time. It's not simply that Christ is the anointed of God, the Son of God, God himself come in the flesh. 
So they now know the when, and they now know the who. What has happened? What did Jesus come and do? He took God's grace and forgiveness and glory and says, no longer is this story just for the Jews. It's no longer just this one tribe or family that God has has protected and preserved down through the centuries to preserve his promised seed, the deliverer, the one that was promised to Eve back in Genesis 3, that he said, your seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. But it's not like that anymore because now this, this glory has been revealed to the Gentiles. Isaiah says this, the people that sat in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus comes and reveals himself, and Paul's been made a minister to the Gentiles. This was so controversial in the world that Paul was preaching to that Paul had to end a sermon early over this particular point of his sermon. I can say it today, and we all nod our heads and say, amen. I'm glad that God brought the Gentiles into the church, aren't you? But when Paul began preaching this truth in the book of Acts at one point, when he tells them, and, uh, and God said to him, I am going to send you to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, they started screaming and shouting and shouted him down. In fact, that was the end of the sermon. They couldn't hear him anymore. Away with such a fellow from the earth, they say. Because they had, they had come to be convinced that their upbringing and their bloodline and their tribe was synonymous with being accepted by God. That to be a Jew was to be accepted by God. To be accepted by God meant you must be a Jew. And Jesus comes and reveals his glory among the Gentiles. That's what the church is. The birth of the church as we have today begins in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit descends on a group of, at that point, Jewish disciples gives them the gift of languages so that the gospel can be preached through all the world. And it's finally brought to its its, um, culmination, to like the the story is, the, the, the introduction is completed, if that's one way to put it, in Acts chapter 15, when the Jerusalem council meets, they're very concerned about what they need to do about the, 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 um, the budding segment of the church, which is no longer Jewish. Do they need to obey the Jewish law or not? And they decide, you know what? No. Abstain from meat offered to idols, abstain from fornication, from things strangled, from blood, and the grace of God be with you. Because what they made it was about their identity in Christ, seeing Jesus as a Messiah, not only for the Jewish people, but for everyone, for the whole world. And Paul says this glory which is revealed. The glory that the Jews took was the fact of what was, what was in them, their bloodlines. In fact, they say that a good Jew could quote his genealogy all the way back uh, to um, generation after generation, maybe a really good Jew could quote their bloodline, all, their, their genealogy, all the way back to Abraham. It was important that they know where they came from because they, they took their spiritual uh, status from their genetic heritage. 
But Paul says that isn't the riches of God's glory that he's revealed to us now. The riches of the glory of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you see that? It's no longer who's a son of Abraham. It's who's a child of God. It's no longer about who can trace their genetic heritage back to our father in the faith in a physical sense, but instead it's about a spiritually transformative experience that each one of us have to have if we are going to be fit for the presence of God. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone. Why would he warn them? He would warn them because as Jesus warned Nicodemus, as Jesus warned the leaders of the the, um, Pharisees in his day, none of us get to heaven just because we're good people or because we did good things. A friend of mine and I were talking about this um, just a week before last. We live in a culture that kind of says, well, Jesus is a good teacher, a good man, son of God, died on the cross for our sins, the way to heaven. But is he the only way to heaven? What about people that have never heard of him? What about people that have never had that opportunity? Well, I don't, I don't believe, uh, first of all, just the fact that we're sitting here in church together, hearing God's word, means that none of you are in the condition of a heathen in Africa that's never heard of Jesus or in some untouched tribe in the South Pacific that has never heard about Jesus. So what that means is whatever, whatever the eternal fate of those who have never heard of Christ is, it has nothing to do with your fate as a person who does know about Jesus. So the question for you is not, can someone who has never heard of Christ get to heaven without Jesus? The question is, what are you going to do standing before holy God if you don't truly know Christ? We're looking at what Paul says when he says that the hope of glory is Christ in you. So it's not simply knowing about Jesus or being in proximity to Jesus, but it's a radical transformation where Christ is in us. The Holy Spirit of God has come and and lives within us. That there has been a, a union between our personality, who we are, our identity and our individuality with Jesus. That it's no longer about my life and that I know about Jesus and I told him I was sorry when I did some bad things, but about allowing the Spirit of God to transform and change us. We call it the new birth because it's such a new thing. It's so transformative. A person who was bound by sin, unable to follow God's law, unable to please God, to honor God, and doesn't even love God, is transformed in a moment of time where now all of my affections and interests and and desires have been transformed and changed, and now I do love God. So what I know for us is the only hope of heaven for you and you and you and you is Christ in you. The only hope in life and death, is that we would belong to Jesus. That we take him as our Lord and master and we follow him. He fills and transforms and changes us. Where the Jews pointed to to their inheritance, their heritage, their genetic lineage as, as proof 
of their um, rightness before God. Instead, you and I don't point to that. Instead, we point to Jesus as the only one, the only, the only righteous man who stands as a, uh, as a bridge between God and man. And here's what Paul says. He says that he's admonishing and warning and teaching so that we can present everyone mature in Christ. And for this reason, and there's, there's such a paradox in Paul's closing, closing words, because he said, for this reason, I toil, struggling. And it's interesting, because I'm looking here in my, uh, in my other translation. I was looking at both of them, because listen to what he says. He said, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Do you see that? Paul does not say, for this reason I toil, working with all my might. He says, I'm working with his energy. Do you see that? Paul sees himself as a steward all the way down. So what do I mean by that? What I mean is that Paul says he's been given this glorious gift of the gospel mystery to proclaim to the Gentiles. He's been given a task to do, which is to proclaim that gospel to the world. And not only that, he's even been given the energy to accomplish it. And all he has to do is use it. He needs to use the energy that he's been given. He says, I'm working, toiling with all the power that he has given me because he's working powerfully within me. Uh, I don't want to be sacrilegious or make a, uh, a maybe a, a crass or a strange um, illustration or application, but I've been trying to, I've been racking my mind, how can we grasp this idea of Jesus in me, Jesus inside of me? Uh, how do I grasp this idea of un- union with Christ, that I'm not just in Chicago, but I'm in Jesus and Jesus is in me? Because as we think about it, since we're discussing spiritual reality, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that Jesus is like, a, like a, um, a drug that's been shot into my, that I've mainlined like heroin, and now I've got Jesus inside of me. It's not like Jesus is an incubator egg that I get inside of, and now I'm all cozy because I'm inside Jesus. This is not physical realities that we're describing. You understand? These are covenant realities. It's the idea that, that Christ has chosen me and I have chosen him. And, and the two of us are, are united by that covenant. But when Paul discusses the mighty energy that he's working, that's working out of him, all I can think of is, is uh, when you've had a really strong dose of caffeine. Um, I had a, uh, a fellow student when I was in college that... Um, was a little over energetic at the best of times, but stayed up all night the night before finals and thought it would be a good idea to take like two caffeine pills right before they came in for their finals. And um, for being at a Bible college that that wasn't a, a really uh, uh, drug inundated kind of place, if you can imagine. Um, she was as hopped up as anyone I saw at school. She could not sit still. In fact, the teacher had to send her out of the room for a while because she was just going bonkers. Because there was inside of her a source of energy 
that in one sense she was assimilating into her body, but it was at the same time foreign from her. Are you following me? So there's, there's something that's working its way out in her life. And when Paul speaks of this Christ in you, the hope of glory, what he's saying is that this new spiritual life has been poured into me and is transforming and changing me. I've become so aware over the past six months of my life how um, we're more than just physical beings. We're a spiritual being as well. And that realities like depression and discouragement or excitement and, and a forward purpose have such a transformative effect on us even physically. Like there's an interaction between those two things. You can't just cut the one off. So we live in a culture that's lost any uh, definite direction and purpose. And the reason why people are drawn to, um, to cults, the reason why people are drawn to uh, organized militia and to, um, to conspiracies and uh, to all these different things is because they have this deep need for something giving them drive and purpose in their life. There's something missing, and they're looking for something to fill that void. But for Paul, Jesus was big enough in his life to fill up that spot in his world so that he, from then on, lived out the incredible energy and purpose that God had put within him. He is striving with a goal in mind, and it transforms every activity. Paul is not working in a legalistic fashion or in simply a, um, a moralistic uh, striving through human effort. Paul recognizes that every breath he takes and every step he walks, it is driven by the energy of the power of the gospel. At one point, Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation. Do you, do you see that there's a connection here where Paul says this gospel that he's preaching is not something that he has to shove down people's throats because there's a spirit of God that's a, at work in the world around him that's grabbing the hearts of people and changing them, that's transforming the world he lives in. And the only hope that we have for the city of Chicago, the only hope we have for our church is Christ in you, the hope of glory, that something can happen within you so miraculous and so overpowering that the energy and the transforming work of that experience transforms everything else around you and the people around you are affected and touched by the grace and power of God. We talked before about the way sin colors and affects the world around us. It taints and it corrupts. But Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection set loose in our world a new reality. And when Christ is in you, it's like we've come into contact with a new sort of radioactivity that begins to affect the world around us. And until we're gripped with the beauty of that story and the power of this reality... We turn to try to find some, some motive source somewhere else. We, we try to find something to push us forward. And we draw meaning and purpose from, from uh, comic book heroes and, and, and from uh, career, um, uh, a, uh, career ladder that we try to push forward. 
But for Paul, Jesus became everything to him. And Paul's working out with mighty energy. Energy that's not his own. Because he belongs to Jesus and Jesus belongs to him. And Jesus and Paul now have had a, had a radically, a, a covenant uniting experience. And Paul is preaching that to the world as the church is formed and shaped and grown by the gospel. As the message of Jesus Christ's forgiveness and transforming power reaches out and touches the world around Paul and changes it. Not because Paul is an amazing man, although he is an amazing man, educated and intelligent. But Paul, Paul pushes down all those things. He said, I count those nothing but, but rubbish. They, rubbish. They are sewage in my life compared to the excellency of knowing Christ. And for you in your life, to know Jesus and to know Jesus' people is the most important thing. To find that in the center of your life, it is set right because you now are right with God. And you're among the people who are right with God, who've been transformed and changed by the power of Christ. The grace of God works out through his church and touches the world around us. Amen. If I understand faith, it's not counting on me. It's the hope and assurance of what I can see. It's the daily relying on Jesus to be providing more grace faithfully. Further proving his great love for me. Grace for the moment, all that I need. Grace for the moment, and faith to receive the promises given to those who believe. Grace for the moment, all that I need. those who